There are two culinary uses for smoke. One is as a flavoring. The other is as a preservative. The first is the realm of barbecue. The second, smoke curing. For this week's show, I went to the Smoked Seafood School in Kodiak and brought back some knowledge, some locks, and some hot smoke silvers. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. spend any time in commercial kitchens or processing facilities, you eventually end up becoming familiar with something called a HACCP plan. Like 80% of modern American English, it's an acronym, H-A-C-C-P, and it stands for Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Points. It's required of just about anyone who wants to produce food that's considered potentially hazardous at the retail or wholesale level. Bread and jam makers don't typically need one because bread and jam are considered safe when produced under ordinary sanitary conditions. Makers of salami, smoked fish, and vacuum-packaged foods are almost always required to have one because producing them involves a number of steps in which dangerous bacteria or other hazards can thrive or be introduced. The hazard analysis part of the name covers this part. You break down the entire process of production into its constituent steps and consider what microbes or other contaminants might be found at each stage. Then you detail the procedures you will take to reduce or eliminate each hazard. These are the critical control points. These can range from covering ingredient bins to keep mice out to heating and cooling steps that kill specific bacteria to how often a particular piece of machinery is cleaned and inspected. They can include testing for pH, salinity, water activity, and a host of other more esoteric chemical characteristics. They always include a description of what you will do in case a control point is not properly implemented, and there are extensive record-keeping requirements. HACCP plans are an extremely refined version of the kind of thing that goes on in ordinary kitchens all the time. They are a distillation not only of the most modern scientific methods, but of the extremely hard-earned knowledge of thousands of years of food preservation. Much like the 80-year-old woman who has been smoking salmon her whole life using methods derived from what she learned from her elders and her own observations, HACCP plans are inherently conservative because innovation in food preservation often comes at the cost of lives, or at least long, unpleasant hours groaning on the bathroom floor. Smoke as a means of food preservation is used to some degree all over the world, but smoking becomes much more of a critical control point the further north you go. In hot, dry areas, air drying is the most common method for preserving meats, most famously in the great dried hams of Spain and Italy. The critical control point is the lowered water activity and high salt concentration. All across hot and humid Southeast Asia, notably in Thailand, preservation often takes place by adding starches to sausages in order to stimulate fermentation and generate an environment acidic enough to suppress hazardous microbes. 
In the north, however, and also in the mountains, it is often too cool to properly air dry meat and fish, at least naturally. Across human history, people in northern environments hit on the same critical control point, smoke. Even a smokehouse built for cold smoking will be warmer and drier than a cool fall day. The draft required for the smoke to flow ensures that moisture will be constantly wicked away. The smoke itself is acidic and suppresses harmful bacteria on the surface of the food. If the area is windy enough, you can even do away with the house part altogether and just strategically move fish around a carefully tended fire. Today, of course, we can throw all those geographical restrictions out the window. I can use an undercounter wine refrigerator monitored by a thermostat attached to a PID controller and make perfectly serviceable salami in the middle of winter on the coast of the Gulf of Alaska. Jimmy in Georgia can import frozen king salmon, pop it into his electric smoker, and turn out a side of lox or hot smoked belly whenever he wants. But what me and Jimmy both lack is any sort of historical knowledge about what we're doing. We don't really know what things are supposed to look like throughout the process. We don't know what kinds of molds are okay and what kinds are bad. We don't know if the wood we're using is good, bad, or indifferent. We haven't heard stories of the various ways that the process has gone wrong. As long as it's only us eating the product, that's fine. It is our bowels, after all. But when me or Jimmy decide to open up a commercial smokehouse to sell our awesome salami and salmon, suddenly it's your bowels too, and you might hope that we know what we're doing. And that's what the HACCP plan is supposed to demonstrate. Behind every one of its intricately described steps, behind every $40,000 piece of machinery designed to bring a certain amount of product to a certain temperature within a certain period of time, Behind every complex measuring instrument that requires a degree in microbiology to understand and operate is thousands and thousands of years of people mostly living and occasionally dying by the food they ate. The modern HACCP plan is just a newer version of people around a fire on a remote beach 2,000 years ago, observing the fish they are smoking and talking about how to do it better. This week's Check the Pantry, I spent two days at the Smoked Seafood School, a yearly class in Kodiak presented by Alaska Sea Grant and the University of Alaska Fairbanks. It's aimed mainly at the small commercial processor, although there were people who only smoked at home there as well. There's a lot of ground covered in the two days, from equipment to packaging to touring small processors, as well as making four different types of smoked salmon products. First, we'll hear from Chris Sinito, who runs the school, giving an overview of the smoking process as well as walking us through the production of locks. I'm going to go through this presentation. This is called Practical Aspects of Commercial Fish Smoking. And I want to tell you just some of the things that I've learned running a, a small commercial smokehouse over the last uh, 10, 15 years now. So in this talk here, we're going to just look at some of the typical product forms. We'll talk about some of the raw materials, some of the basic ingredients that are used, equipment, so fish smoking, as you all know, it's very long history all along, the, especially the Pacific Northwest here. There's old fire pits and evidence that the natives who lived along the coast were actively preserving fish with smoke. Of course, that's a combination of salting and smoking. And they found that um, even better than, uh, well, with, with smoking, it imparted a um, appealing flavor and it also preserved it better than 
than just salting alone. Today's modern smoking, it combines art and science. And this morning we did both wet and dry brining. There's other ways of brining, such as uh, uh, needle injectors. And most recently there's needleless injectors. So there's like high pressure water jets that would go and shoot right through fillets, which is a really neat new technology. So when we introduce fish to salt, the salt does something that they call solubilizing the protein. So it almost dissolves the surface protein on it. It kind of melts the protein. And that in part is due to the shine that you get from the, the nice shiny smoked salmon. It, it, you know, it has almost like a, sometimes a shiny mirror finish on it. And, and that is a, an appealing characteristic, I would say, but um, surface drying is very important. There's ways, you know, where we'll take it out of the brine and we might blow air on it even before introducing it to the smoker. The smoker that we're using downstairs, you can program that automatically into the cycle. So oftentimes before the smoke process starts, we're going to just blow air in there to get that nice little shell of a dry on it called a pellicle to form. And then the, the smoking, you know, we can categorize smoking as either hot smoking or cold smoking. And generally cold smoking would be below 80, 85 degrees Fahrenheit and hot smoking would be up above 145 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's where you totally cook the, the protein and it you know, has very different characteristics. Also called kippered, refers to, to cooked salmon, smoked salmon. So right after the smoking process, very important um, step is the cooling process. Whether you do it by, you know, bringing it into a refrigerator or into a, a cooler, or you can have the oven do that cooling for you. These modern smoke ovens, we can program them to, in the after the hot smoke, we can program the next stage to be a refrigerated stage. So it's really nice. And then you come to get your finished uh, smoke salmon at the end of the cycle, and it's already chilled down to temperature, so a lot of smokers can do that now. There's a definitely a, a, an art to that, because uh, if you make too hard of a pellicle, you'll encase everything in there, and then once you do bring it up to temperature, it's going to kind of explode. You know, it won't have a way of venting off that moisture from the inside. So here's some, some forms of cold smoking. These were done on the machine that we have downstairs, and um, you can see it's a full sockeye skinned fillet, and then it's sliced like a deck of cards, about one millimeter slices, and it's sliced at an angle, so these slices are nice and long, and they're really nice on a piece of toaster. Bagel, yep, yeah, bagel and a uh, little onion and mustard, right? And so the terms lox, lox, and lox, L-A-X, all refer to uh, filleted cured and sliced, not necessarily smoked. You know, and we kind of use that, if we're talking about, we should be calling it Novalox, if it's gonna be smoked and cured. That's what we're really making downstairs, Novalox. And then there's a Scottish style, which salt, sugar, spices, herbs, and it's also cold smoked. And then Gravlox uh, would be cured with a combination of salt, sugar, herbs, underweights, and you know, served with mustards, but you can do grovlox in the refrigerator. And do you, any of you guys do that out of a 
nice piece of king salmon or something. That's a great, great thing to do. Put away in the. So we would use one of these those KT tubs, those push carts, and we would just build our mountain of um, sockeye salmon, kind of watching, see how the salt is here and then the sugar is melted and. You do kind of have to watch so you don't get pockets that are too strong. But in this type of a process, we after we oversalt it a little bit, and then we re-rinse it. Yeah, we rinse it in a over overflowing water for quite some time. Sometimes like ten minutes, and we'll we'll rinse it really good, and then we'll just let it sit in this overflowing pool. And we know when it's the right texture by the the springiness of it. If it's too soft, it it goes back in the the brine. If it's just a little bit flexible springy then it's it's ready to go but uh to make locks in a in a plant it's it's kind of a little bit risky business because it requires number one a very high quality raw material the fish we had this morning were okay but not anything really great if if we were going to make locks commercially we might try to make some arrangements with the fishermen ahead of time to you know, pay double the grounds price for those fish and uh, ask them to be bled and iced in a certain way to, to preserve that quality as best we can. And for the red salmon, we like the bigger fish to seem to make the best, most impressive locks, I would say. Here's where we can actually start with a, a fish that maybe a, a five pound fish that we paid a dollar a pound. So there's a $5 fish, we could turn that into a, a $60 fish by the time we're done with it, selling two sides of cold smoked salmon out of that fish. And then the ingredients, there's many different types of ingredients that people incorporate into locks, such as salt, brown sugar, white sugar, which has a whole different penetrating property than brown sugar, herbs, even green tea extract, white pepper, those are all used to kind of add a different distinctive flavor into, into cold smoking. This is kind of what the, the product looks like after the smoking process. You can see the, the surface proteins have melted kind of and um, has a beautiful sheen to it. And then um, another characteristic that you know the lox is getting towards the done stage is that the oil begins to start weeping on the top. And it's still a raw, a raw kind of a feel to it, but it's um, definitely changed from that state. And, this would be towards the end of the brining cycle. You see the, the free water that drips. And notice today when I chose uh, containers, I didn't want containers that were gonna hold that syrup that drips off. I wanted to, to release that because if you contain that syrup, it can overly brine your, your fish very quickly. So if in the typical Novalox process, we would start with, uh, from the fishing vessel, we'd wanna order live bled fish, chilled throughout, unloaded. We're, we're kind of concerned about blemishes because we don't want to put all this work into a fish that is not super quality from the get-go. Then we've got unloading, rinsing, heading and gutting, rinsing again, then we've got filleting, then we've got you know chilling in between perhaps, and then we'll go through the pin boning process, rinsed again, then we kind of pat dry it, then we'll start the, the dry brining. After the dry brining, we're gonna rinse again. Then we're gonna cooler dry. And this is an important stage too, because after we make a giant tub of salmon, 
we some of their there's kind of hot spots of sugar and salt still in this fish but by letting it relax in the cooler for about 24 hours it it really dissipates everything and it makes it, it does it really nice so we always like to hold it for and to do that you need a, a walk-in room that you can just park that whole truck in and let it let it kind of equilibrate then after smoking we run it on a skinning machine and then after skinning it we'll freeze it so we're going to make it nice and hard not totally freeze it but just firm it up and then once it's firmed up we'll put it on a slicing machine and we'll slice it like a deck of cards packed label and then finally freeze and this would be a appetizer of uh, cold smoked salmon with a grapefruit little piece on top and some Greek yogurt and a cucumber. My wife made that and I took a picture. So <laughs> it's really good. It's nice because uh, it seems like you get tired of all the bread all the time, right? Doughy stuff. So this is like a non-bread version of that. And it's such a like complicated flavor between the grapefruit, citrus, and the smoky salmon and uh, creamy uh, yogurt. So on this week's Check the Pantry, we are talking about smoke. And of course, it's Alaska, so what we're going to talk about is smoked seafood. This is all derived from the smoked seafood school that I went to. It's put on by Alaska Sea Grant and University of Alaska Fairbanks. And it's kind of aimed more toward commercial operators, but it's extremely useful for home smokers. The other segments that you're hearing today came from that school, from their instructors. The important thing, though, for our purposes is what do we do with this smoked salmon? Instead of talking about how to smoke salmon because everybody has their own opinion, today we're going we're to talk about what to do with it afterwards because it's actually, it's one of those things where I wind up, I have a lot of smoked salmon left over and it's like, what do I do with it? Okay, I've made smoked salmon cream cheese dip, you know, and I've put out the size of smoked salmon for people to pick at and that's great. Okay, what else can we do? So the two classic sort of salmon dishes that always get made, smoked salmon dip and some kind of smoked salmon pasta. Originally, I was like, well, maybe we'll do something different, you know, I'll get crazy and do some wacky smoked salmon recipes. But then I thought, you know, why don't we start at the basics and do them in just a slightly tweaked form. So I'm going to do two smoked salmon recipes today. One is going to be a smoked salmon terrine, and the other is going to be a smoked salmon carbonara. So basically, smoked salmon dip and smoked salmon pasta just tweaked a little. So the first thing I'm going to make is the terrine going to be a cold appetizer. A terrine, as we've talked about before, is just the French word for meatloaf pan, basically. The original ones were, were made of usually either cast iron or earthenware, and they're sort of big, and you make meatloaves in them, essentially. But now there's lots of different shapes of them, and I have happen to have one here. It's a little stainless steel terrine. It's about 14 inches long, maybe two inches wide. The shape is like an A, an inverted A with the pointy end cut off, and I use it a lot for all sorts of different things. Terrines are nice because you can slice them. Also, they just look super nice. They look really cool. Whenever I put one of these out, people go nuts. They're like, wow, that's so cool looking. It makes people want to eat them. There are a bunch of different ways that you can make them. You can get really nuts. You can layer them in intricate manners. You can use contrasting ingredients. You can do all sorts of things with them. Today, we're just going to make a pretty simple one, but it's going to look cool because instead of incorporating the smoked salmon on the inside of the dip, I'm going to put it on the outside. One of the things we made at the Smoked Seafood School was lox. Lox, as we discussed, is a cold smoked, um, very thinly sliced salmon. 
it's usually served with some sort of cream cheese, you know, frequently on a bagel or on a cracker or whatever. You can do all sorts of things with it. But with lox, you kind of want to showcase the lox. If I've just got some hot smoked chums, I don't mind mashing that all up with some cheese or whatever and calling that a dip and being, you know, we're good with it. But lox is, it's a little more of a process. It's a little more delicate in flavor because it's cold smoked as opposed to hot smoked. And so it's nice if you can showcase it a little bit. This stuff is thinly sliced. It's not, it's machine sliced. So it's not as thin as like some 90 year old dude in a deli with a 18 inch slicing knife is going to be able to pull off, but it's pretty thin. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay the slices of the salmon on the inside of the terrine, and then I'm going to fill it with a mixture of farmer's cheese, leeks, and capers. And this is a really classic combination with lox, you know, which is frequently onions, cream cheese, and capers. So it's totally going to work with this stuff. It's just going to be a little different. I like leeks. I had some leeks. I grew leeks in my garden, so I have a bunch of them. So I'm like, let's use leeks. Why not? And I'm going to use farmer's cheese because for a lot of situations, I actually like it better than cream cheese. It has, it's not so rich and so like firm and solid a texture. It's a little whippier. So I've cleaned my leeks. I need to braise them first. I thought about using them raw and I decided there are certain situations when I like leeks raw, but it, more in a garnish situation. In this situation, I've des I decided I want to braise them. And braising leeks is really easy. So I've prepared my leeks in the usual manner which is cutting off the tough ends, slicing it down the middle, slicing it crosswise, rinsing them out to get any of the dirt out. And now they're just sitting in a strainer and I'm melting some butter and we'll get these braising. And then I can start lining my terrine. By the time I get done lining my terrine, my farmer's cheese will be ready to whip. And then by the time the farmer's cheese is whipped, the leeks should be done. Toss them in there, pack the farmer's cheese into the terrine. Well, I'll add the capers too and some black pepper and probably a little Worcestershire. I like Worcestershire. And then all it has to happen is it just needs to sit. So it's a really simple, really awesome dish for when you want to bring it over and impress people with something that looks super cool, but is really easy to make. I've got one side of uh, salmon that we've made locks out of. And like I say, this isn't the thinnest locks in the world. So it's not really ideal, but we'll live with it. One side of salmon is going to make up the top half of the terrine. And then I will line the rest of the terrine with the other salmon. So at the end result is going to be an A-shaped thing lined with smoked salmon down the sides, down the, across the top and across the bottom, and filled on the inside with this mixture of cream cheese, leeks, and capers. It's going to be very pretty. People are going to ooh and ah when they see it. So I'm shingling the salmon across the bottom of the terrine. If you're going to go through the really pretty minimal trouble of making one of these, you know, you really should try to make it look nice. And so this, all these slices on the top and the tops where obviously people are going to see these, uh, these are all going to be from one side of salmon sort of consecutively done, you know, so the grain will all look similar. For an uncooked terrine like this, it's always a good idea to line it with um, plastic wrap. Uh, it makes it a lot easier to unmold it. Um, you can also, if you want to, you can, if you're, if you don't really want to use plastic wrap, which is understandable, uh, you can oil the inside of it, um, use an oil that's real neutral in flavor or something that's not going to contribute any off tastes. With one that you're going to cook, uh, sometimes if you're going to cook it really low, uh, you can still use plastic wrap sometimes, but usually it's a good idea to, uh, oil it. And then at the end of it, after it's all set up, after it's set up for a while in the refrigerator and it's nice and firm and hard and you can work with it. Then you can just drop it into a little bit of simmering water just to melt the oils on the outside of the terrine and heat it, and then it'll drop right out onto your serving dish. 
So we just put them in here, mash them together a little bit, making sure that there are no gaps, because if there are gaps, then things will peek out of the cream cheese, finds a way to peek out of these gaps. And at the end, I'm gonna put a really light, it doesn't matter what it is, this terrine has a lid, so at the end when I make it, I'm gonna put something uh, something to kind of help compress the lid in here, you know, anything that'll fit inside the terrine. If you do this a lot, a lot of people will make a little cut out something that they can put on there and use it as a weight because then as it sits overnight, if you compress it together, then everything will sort of meld a little bit better and it'll be easier uh, at the end to cut it because it'll be more of a, com a compact solid unit, which is what you want. You can do this with ham. You can do it with prosciutto. You can do this with anything at all that is thin slices. I have done it with cucumbers. I have done it with blanched mustard greens. I've made like, uh, I made a black eyed pea terrine once. There was a uh, blanched mustard greens or blanched collard greens uh, around a spicy sort of black eyed pea puree and let that set up. You can use gelatin to set things up inside the terrine. There's, there's a ton of, ton of different things that you can do. I've got the, the bottom of the, the terrine completely covered and then the, the sides of the fish come up the sides. So now I just start to lay Use the offcuts for the ends. You can also leave the ends bare, in which case you don't have to cut into the terrine to see what it looks like. But in this case, I'm going to cover up the end with some of the not, not so nice looking pieces, because there's always gonna be some. And now I'll just start lining the sides as well. And with the sides, I'll take the pieces and sort of uh, leave them kind of half laid over, because then once, once we fill the terrine, then we'll fold all the parts that lay on the outside over the top of it, and that'll form the base of the terrine. And then if there's any last little holes then, then we can just patch them up with little bits of salmon, because it'll be on the bottom and nobody, nobody will ever see it. Trust me, one of the nice things about terrines is, unless you're really dealing with people that know, you know, that are real passionate about them, and is that they're, they can be pretty, they can be kind of homey, and they're still really cool looking, you know, people, they're a nice showstopper of a, uh, of an appetizer. They look good, they taste really good, and everybody, even the grouch, even grouchy people are impressed by terrines because they, they think they're a lot more work than they really are. That is about a side and a half of locks, which I guess if you're a, if you don't live in Alaska, that seems really extravagant. And if you do live here, you're like, God, can I get rid of more of it? One of the disadvantages of the seafood school only being two days uh, was that everything was a little bit rushed. And so this locks could be a little thinner sliced, could be a little harder smoked, but no one is going to complain about it when it shows up as an appetizer. All right, so I have got, that's about a half a jar of capers. I just dumped it into my KitchenAid. I'm just gonna whip this uh, farmer's cheese to a, to a nice frothy sort of consistency. It's just like making cream cheese uh, or making cheesecake where you whip the cheesecake. So I'm just doing it in my stand mixer with a paddle attachment. I'm going to drop a little shot of Worcestershire, four or five drops, and because I can't help it, a couple drops of Tabasco. They make a lot of different shapes of these uh, terrines. You can get them U-shaped, you can get them square. You can get big ones, you can get small ones, you can even use like ramekins, like if you have ramekins around that you've never used for creme brulee because you never make creme brulee, you can use those as uh, terrines. 
you can keep them, you know, if, if it's a nice serving dish, it's traditional to just leave it in the terrine. So you don't even have to worry about unmolding it, but you can unmold it. You can leave it in the, in the dish. It, they're really, really versatile and you can do a lot of different things. You can make them, you can make them cooked. You can make them hot. You can make them cold. Anything you want to do, you can make them out of game. You can make them out of poultry. You can make them out of anything. You can make them very light and frothy almost. You can make them uh, heavy and solid and dense. You can put them in a crust. You can not put them in a crust. They're really awesome. I love them. So my leeks, I gave them a real short braise this time. Just enough to kind of take the rawness off of them. And I just realized I need to put a little black pepper in here. I think we all know the reason that we use so much black pepper on this show is because it sounds really cool on the radio. Okay, there's the hard part. Now I'll go back over to my terrine and fill it. This is a slightly careful process, particularly with a thicker filling like we have. If you have a real thin one, like a something that's a little more battery, it's really easy. I've got most of the, most of the, the cream cheese out. Now I'm just gonna get a spoon and kind of slowly work it into the terrine. And just gradually kind of hold on to the salmon on the outside and just pat it down. Because we want to avoid air being in the, being in the terrine. So when we slice it, we don't see big air bubbles. Nobody wants to see that when they cut into this beautiful thing. They want to see the, the ruby red salmon and the farmer's cheese on the inside studded with capers and little bits of braised leek. They don't want to see big air bubbles. One package of this farmer's cheese and these few leeks and my capers is going to exactly fit into this size terrine. But even if it didn't, if there was some left over, boy, that would be a real problem. I would have to eat it. So now I'm just going to fold my sides over. And again, if there's any little spots showing, it's okay. Because I've still got a few little chunks of salmon left over. I can fill those with. That rooster always has something to say. I'm just slicing little scraps of salmon to cover up the, the missing bits. Now I'm going to cover that with the hanging sides of the plastic wrap. The ideal filling is just a tad higher than the sides of the terrine because then you can just lay the, the actual stainless steel cover on top and weight that and that'll set it up. And I'm basically right there. So I'm gonna go put the, uh, I'm gonna put the stainless steel cover on it and I'm gonna weight this in the refrigerator overnight and tomorrow it should be sliceable um, with a cheese light with something like this where it's mostly cheese. So it's going to be a little bit sticky even after it's made and set up. Um, I would go ahead and use a hot knife, a hot sharp knife to cut it with some things. It doesn't matter so much. But with this one, I would definitely want to cut it with a hot knife. And then you'll get these beautiful slices. And I will uh, try to remember to take some pictures when I cut into this thing. But you can make them two, three days ahead ahead of time. And they only get better. The flavors merge and the texture gets beautiful. Um, they're awesome. I love terrines and we should make more of them. And really from start to finish, um, <laughs> including braising the leeks, that took what, 20 minutes? Mm -hmm.
Easy. The next talk from the Smoked Seafood School is from John Springer, who works for EnviroPack, an Oregon producer of commercial smokehouses, covering the science of wood smoke. So I control the airflow going in, the airflow going out, so I can control the temperature of the smoke. And I record the temperature of the smoke. So one of the things I found out that with the proper airflow going in and exhaust and hot plate, I can get a blue smoke, which is kind of the holy grail. And that blue smoke is between 205 and 215 degrees Fahrenheit. By maintaining that temperature, you're producing that smoke. If you overload it with wood, um, it, it tends to dry out the wood on top, uh, which then becomes a little bit of a problem with heat and you have to snuff it out. And, but with barbecue, that's kind of what you want. You want the smoke in the beginning. You want the flame at the end. So you get the pink ring. Uh, tofu is, I, I do a smoke, not me, a company in uh, Vancouver, BC does smoked tofu, which to date is still the hardest thing that I've smoked because you're smoking water. What I ended up having to do is I would have to dry it out as much as I could, and I'm doing three minute increments. And so we end up running the schedule twice. That's how long it took to, but I got it. I'm amber, dark, brown, it sells like crazy up there. But it's three minute increments, dry, smoke, uh, they call it bake, or just, you know, you just stay there for three minutes. Uh, smoked cheese is usually between 72 and 78 degrees. Uh, if you get over 78, there's um, the uh, fat comes to the surface on cheddar. So it crystallizes after you put it under vacuum for a month. Uh, you have white crystals all over the place. People think it's mold, but it's not. It's crystallization. Okay, so with wood, um, there's a chemical in wood that holds wood together, and it's called lig uh, lignin. And lignin is what gives you flavor and color. And lignin, moisture content of wood as it's being cut is somewhere usually between 23 and 30% for the species that I have tested. As lignin dries up, it's, it's kind of like a tar. So does the color and the flavor. So if you take a, if you take a, a piece of wood that's just been cut and you smoke it, there's a ton of flavor, there's a ton of color, and there's a ton of creosote. So, and you'll really notice this, that you know all these guys that, that run Traegers, they can smoke stuff for five, six, seven hours, and it's, it's perfectly fine. It's not overbearing with smoke. You take a log and smoke with that for that long, it's, you can't eat it, it's, it's too much. And they said, that's one of the studies that I read on, in, uh, in Scotland, is that they over-smoked the wood and your body cannot digest that amount of acidity in, in the meat. Carcinogens that everybody talks about, really there was a study in 1955 on why a certain uh, group of people died of stomach cancer. It's some village. And it was because of the way that they were cooking their product different than everybody else. And what they were doing is they were cooking over an open flame and it's the fat uh, coming off of the product dripping down into the fire source or the heat source and flaming up. That's what, and you see it on the product because it will get kind of a, a, not even brown, it's a blackish or gray look to the meat, um, especially on chicken, it's really bad. You'll really see it, um, but it turns gray. And, and you, you know, uh, another way, this is why I'm kind of moving people away from our wet sawdust smoke generators is when you take a, a fire and you throw water on it to, to snuff it out, you see all those black strings of smoke. 
it doesn't taste good. Water put onto the wood, it doesn't taste good. Naturally occurring moisture in the wood tastes fantastic. That's the natural humidity or, or lignin out that's coming out of the wood. So for the seafood industry, I think it's that's some of the best wood that you can get. So with my log burning smoke generator, the first, and this is, I came up with, not came up with it, but read enough that you finally find it. Um, it's almost like distilling uh, hard liquor. That first stuff that comes out, you don't want to have anything to do with it. So part of my smoke generator, there was a tea in it that would vent out the first 30 minutes. And then after that, put smoke on it for an hour and a half is usually what I was the recipe is you have complete control and smoke and especially coming from logs you're only going to get smoke for a certain amount of time and then it turns into charcoal or, or coals and and there's really no smoke so um what a lot of people will do is they'll scrape off uh, the old stuff put in uh, or they'll put uh, new pieces of wood a lot of the guys will use guys and girls will use chunks that big which works really well the, the funny thing is in the u.s in the lower 48 um, in the north, they want super high, heavy smoke. You go to the middle, they don't want hardly any smoke, and then you get to the south, and it's back onto barbecue. So um, Hermetic uh, large chip smoke generator is what we're just coming out with. I got videos of it. It's an un ungodly amount of smoke. Um, it's a larger wood chip, which has a little bit more lignin in it, um, but you smoke for minutes instead of hours. Um, I have not had it. I have not tried. I haven't gone through the testing to see what it does for fish, but I've been pretty impressed with the smoke. The, the problem with, with it in seafood is we're using that smoke as a preservative, and you're not going to get that benefit if you smoke that quickly because it's not going to, you're going to get the smoke flavor, but you're not going to get the acidity on the, on the product. It just doesn't happen that quickly. So I don't see it really working for the seafood industry. I think, you know, dry sawdust or logs works the best. What some people will do, though, is they'll, they'll, uh, they'll take uh, the wood chunks. And if they cross state lines, they have to be uh, kiln dried uh, to kill any bugs. But they'll take those and throw it on the hot plate to get a little bit more flavor towards the end. Um, but when we get to pellets, so moisture content of wood when it's, when it's first cut is um, uh, somewhere in the 20% uh, percent, uh, uh, humidity. Dry sawdust is uh, from 9 to 13, depending on which wood. Um, pellets is 7 to 9%. So pellets, you don't get hardly, I and mean, people that run pellets, there's a lot of people in the seafood industry and cheese. Cheese is, everybody uses pellets now. For seafood, there's quite a few people that run pellets. The benefit of that is you don't have any creosote. The bad side of it, which most people don't know, is in order to keep the press lubricated, they have to oil it. So there is 2% vegetable oil uh, on the pellet. I actually took them to get them tested, which is burning vegetable oil is a known carcinogen. It's really bad for you. Yeah, they, pre they they keep it lubricated to keep the press going. And they, if you get mesquite, yeah, and if you get mesquite pellets, they've got more because mesquite is such a hard wood that it will it'll bind up the machine. And all my friends have them. And I, I say it one time, and then I don't say it after that. 
So uh, different kinds of smoke. We're creating a pellicle. I think most everybody knows what we're trying to do with fish. We create a pellicle, a sticky environment in order to get the smoke. Oh, I say it right here. 30 to 45% is my goal. Uh, if you get a smokehouse and we're recording humidity, I need humidity to be accurate because if it's too dry, the smoke bounces off of it. If it's too wet, it's right back to tofu. You have to, you can't smoke water. It just, it's just gonna run right off. So my relative humidity, my sticky environment is between 30 and 45%. So um, yellow smoke is uh, deprived of oxygen. Does it talk about it? Resulted, yeah. So they actually made that, uh, uh, what was that movie? Patrick Swayze in it and um, Backdraft. Um, so uh, yellow smoke, you'll see it coming, you know, in, in that environment. It was coming from underneath the door. The fireman goes to open up the door and he's yelling out, no, don't open the door. And as soon as oxygen is, in, uh, it's usually a super hot room, so it's flammable. You open up the door, introduce oxygen, boom, big boom. Um, when we were producing in triggers, um, we'll do this also. If you turn the heat all the way up and um, start running it right from the start, it will blow the lid. That's why the lids um, have a hinge, a heavy hinge on them, is because if you turn them all the way up to the very top, I think it's 550 degrees, it, it will do it almost every time. Because what happens is the pellets create quite a pile right there in the cup, and then they finally, they'll get to a point where they're smoldering, smoldering, smoldering. They go from white to a little bit of black and then to yellow, and then boom. And it just, you know, the flight will, the flame, and we were doing it because we developed a pellet smoke generator, thinking that that was barbecue, everything I was reading about, that's the best, that's what you should be using. And then I started doing research and then go, you know, go to these uh, uh, lumber mills who are manufacturing the pellets and you see the whole process. And I'm like, what are all these vats of, all, uh, not olive oil, vegetable oil doing? Oh, that's our flavoring. Flavoring, what? you start asking more and more questions and then you never ask back. <laughs> so in developing our pellet smoke generator, we had um, a little controller that controlled the feed time on it and it malfunctioned. And our lid on top of the smoke generator was 45 pounds and it blew the lid off, put a dent in my test kitchen ceiling. And we ended up, and I made a joke to Mike, one of our engineers, I said, well, what we should do is put a strap on it like top fuel dragsters. And I go back down there and that's what they did for the next uh, Like it was a joke. Next up, I have some hot smoked silver salmon. You know, hot smoked salmon is what most of us do at home because we don't have uh, proper cold smoking facilities. So we've got some hot smoked salmon that we did at the smoked seafood school. Really simple brine, uh, just some salt and sugar and a little black pepper. So we're going to make a smoked salmon carbonara. All the Italian people, they're all going to get mad. But let me tell you straight out, you don't have to get too mad at me because I'm not going to use any cream in this carbonara because I personally think it's better without as well. So I stand in solidarity with you on that, Italian people. However, I'm not going to make this with any pork products. Uh, there's not going to be any pancetta. There's not going to be any guanciale. Uh, which is usually what they, they use is a Roman dish. And that's what they use is a cured pork jowl. And they don't typically use smoked pork either because Italy is hot and dry and smoke is not as common in their curing and preserving styles. But we're not in Italy. We're in Alaska. 
And so I'm going to use smoked salmon because salmon is the pig of the Pacific Northwest as far as I'm concerned is how important it is and with the number of things that you can do with it. But today I'm going to keep this really simple and this, this whole dish will come together in about as long as it takes me to boil the pasta water. I'm making it with spaghetti. That is the classic carbonara pasta. Uh, this is actually some spaghetti from right up the road from Sterling, I think, is where they make it. And uh, it smelled really nice when I opened the package, so I'm kind of excited about it. The number of ingredients that I have here is I have my smoked salmon. I have a little olive oil because traditionally carbonara is an emulsified sauce made with the pork fat, which is emulsified with the pasta water. But since smoked salmon, it has some fat, but it's not as fatty as like fatty pork. We're going to need to help it along with a little a little more oil. So I'm going to use, you can use butter as well. Butter is the traditional fat in Alfredo, which is also not a cream sauce. And I don't want a super buttery flavor, although you could totally do it. You know, you could, you could even make brown butter, although brown butter and smoked salmon is like, whoa. Now I do have to say, if I was going to make this in a restaurant and I wanted to charge a lot of money for it, I would make a compound butter with the smoked salmon, like we did with the, the snail butter a few episodes back. So I would mix the smoked salmon with butter and then run that through a drum sieve so that I would get this smoked salmon butter and then make use that to emulsify the sauce and then add more smoked salmon into it. And so it would be like you would just be getting hit in the head with smoked salmon. But I'm not doing that today because today, honestly, I'm really hungry <laughs> and this is going to be my lunch and I don't want to wait too much longer to eat because I'm hungry and I want something quick. This is a nice dish for when you're just you've got some smoked salmon. You've got an egg, you've got some olive oil, you've got a little cheese, and you're just ready to eat something pretty fast. The longest thing with this is waiting for the pasta water to boil, which is what we're doing right now while I'm running my mouth. So I'm not using a ton of pasta water, and I'm not using oil in the pasta water, which is totally a waste of oil. I was taught to make pasta by four Italian women um, at a hostel that I was staying at in Edinburgh. Let's see, there was, there was Lola, there was Alessandra, Patti, and uh, Floriana. I had a huge crush on Floriana, but she barely spoke English, and I, nothing happened there. But anyway, I was making pasta in the way that I learned how to do it, which is a huge pot of water, a bunch of oil on top, and they came in and they saw me, and they were freaking out. They were like, stop, stop, stop. So they taught me how to make pasta. Not very much water. Enough water so that it comes back to a boil fairly quickly, but not a vast quantity of water, because what you're looking for in the pasta is you want there to be, after it's, after it's all cooked, you want there to be a fair amount of start uh, in the pasta. You don't want it to be super diluted because you're going to use that pasta water in the sauce to help emulsify the sauce and it'll swell up and it'll help the uh, pasta and the sauce marry. Olive oil, egg, smoked salmon, black pepper, and some Pecorino Romano. I also had some fava beans because I have them and they were sitting in my fridge and I needed to use them. And uh, some people, there are, there are people who put peas in their carbonara, you know, sugar peas. Um, I typically don't if I'm just making it, but today I saw the I saw the fava beans in there and I was like, hey, I'll, you know, I'll, I need to use them, and they're delicious. Trust me, they were my one of my great discoveries along with pickled mustard greens. Fava beans were sort of my great discovery this year. Uh, I'd had them before, but I'd never grown them, and they did really really well in my garden. And so I'm going to be growing a lot more next year. And so we'll have some things to say about fava beans, but that's next year. So with these, as soon as my pasta water comes to a boil, I'm going to blanch the favas real briefly. And then they'll go into the pan with the uh, smoked salmon. Okay, my pasta is at a nice rolling boil. Start up the other pan, start making my sauce. I just blanched the favas right before the pasta went in. And now I'm just going to give it, you want a fair, you know, you want a little bit of oil because it is going to be an emulsified sauce. So that's maybe, 
tablespoon and a half of oil. And I'm gonna let come up to temp. I'm not really trying to saute this stuff real hard. This isn't a hot thing, you know. This Because it's an emulsified sauce too, we don't wanna get everything super hot because we don't wanna break our sauce. So I've just added the smoked salmon and the fava beans. And I'm just gonna basically heat these through. Once the pasta gets done, I'm gonna, I've got tongs. I'm not gonna drain the pasta. I'm gonna pull it out of the water with the tongs because I want all that excess water with the free starch in it to come with it. And then I'm gonna, I got a ladle nearby and I'm gonna wind up ladling a little bit of the, of the pasta water into the sauce. Not a lot, you don't wanna bunch because you don't wanna sit there and reduce it because that runs the risk that you're gonna break your emulsion. You know, one reason that restaurants use the giant pots of water is A, it comes up to a boil a lot quicker, but if you're also running batch after batch after batch after batch through, by the end of the night, that pasta water is gonna be saturated with starch and it's gonna make these beautiful silky sauces. In our case, we don't need that. You can get away with a lot less water for boiling pasta than, than I've certainly learned with. Once I add the pasta too, um, the, the last thing that's gonna go in is the egg. Uh, because obviously, as we all know, eggs are very sensitive to heat. So I'm going to get everything kind of mostly on the way there. And the last thing that's going to really pull everything together and give the sauce that sort of silky texture is adding the egg, which I'm going to do off the heat. If you push this dish too far, you get scrambled eggs and you don't want that. And all I'm using is the yolk. I'm not using the whole egg because the rest of the egg is just water and uh, proteins that really don't do me any good for this dish. So that egg white has been repurposed for something else. In some ways, uh, carbonara, the sauce is, is very similar to like a hollandaise, you know, it's an egg, it's an egg based, a hot egg based emulsified sauce. Still a little bit crunchy. And when you're doing sauces, you know, when you're making pasta like this, the best way to do it is always to pull the pasta out just, just a hint before it's actually fully done and then uh, finish it in the sauce because as, as you're you know, reducing the sauce down and boiling it to, to get the pasta water and the, and the oil to marry, then you know, it's gonna take a little bit of extra cooking. And if you, if you pull it when it's a little past its prime, it's just gonna get softer and soggier. My wife used to do the, uh, when she was, she was young, she and first learning to cook, she used to do the throw the pasta against the wall, against the ceiling, and see what sticks method. And, uh, and then when she moved out of the apartment that she learned how to do that in, she had to spend a lot of time cleaning uh, the dried pasta that was stuck to the walls and ceiling all over the place where she'd thrown it. So here at Check the Pantry, we do not endorse that method. We endorse the taste the pasta method. Just about there. So I'm going to turn my heat back on in my saucepan, and I bet when I taste this particular piece of pasta, this is going to tell me that we are there. Mm-hmm, we are there. So now I move it over with my tongs, dropping my pasta in. Turn the heat up just a hair, and now I'm gonna pull out, this is probably two tablespoons of that pasta water. You know, you might have to add a little bit more. Uh, you just kind of got to play it by ear. Stir and stir and stir. 
And as you stir, as you stir, you can kind of see the oil and the water will start to bind together a little bit. And now I've added my cheese, and cheese is also loaded with emulsifiers. And now the sauce has definitely got a hazy look to it because it's starting to get that richness that we're after. And it's got, now it's got some thickness and some body to it. And now I'm gonna go ahead and turn off the uh, heat and I'm gonna drop my egg yolk right in there. And now it's turned the pasta a rather lovely shade of yellow. And really, you know, a lot of times I won't even use any extra heat at this point because the residual heat of the pasta and the sauce and everything is gonna cook the egg yolk exactly to where it needs to be. So if it, if it doesn't look like it's thickening up quite as much as it should have, you can add a little more or add a little heat to it, but not very much because the only thing that you can really mess up in this sauce is if you break the egg yolk and then you wind up with scrambled eggs and pasta, which, you know, it's still gonna taste all right, but it's not really what you're looking for. All right, add a little more black pepper. Get my plate. I can't do the fancy nesting thing that all the fancy Italian restaurants do. Whatever. And now I have this really beautiful silky pasta with all these nice fava beans and big chunks of smoked silver salmon. And I am gonna go eat because it's time and I'm hungry. Super easy, super easy. I mean, start to finish, as soon as you drop, drop the pasta in the water, as soon as the pasta done is done, it's another two minutes to make, to finish everything, and so easy, so good, so delicious. Smoke Silver Carbonara. I recommend it. Finally, here's Chris Sinito again, talking about traditional Alaskan native methods of smoking salmon. This is the native style smoking. This is really interesting. This was actually produced in a, a couple of years back in a uh, smoked seafood workshop. A guy from Bristol Bay came in and showed us how he does his smoked salmon. So he, we would take those red fillets like we had, and he'll make a, a bucket of saturated brine. When we say saturated brine, that means no more salt can be dissolved in it. We've dissolved so much salt and we've mixed it and mixed it and mixed it and we put more salt and then it starts to accumulate on the bottom. That's reached its saturation point. So once you have a saturated brine, he took that, that filet and real simple, grabbed the filet, he scored it a couple times across the filet with his knife and then dipped it in that and he counted exactly 15 minutes of soaking in there. And then he pulled it out, no rinsing shook it a little bit and then we air dried it and then we ran it in the in the smoke oven alongside a bunch of other products and it comes out beautiful i think and the um, you would think the salt would be way too strong but it just is perfect that really hard brine um, or the strong brine i think it penetrates deeper and faster it gives it very different characteristics we would kind of call that a hard hard smoke so this is a you could knock it on the on the table, it'd be pretty pretty firm, but it's quite desirable, I think. In, in our state regulations, it's like uh, three days, yeah, with continuous smoke, and that continuous smoke is the, the hurdle, I think. Uh, and I, I think at one time there was a, an operation that would produce this uh, native-style salmon that was under the 
the state regs that was doing it, and uh, I don't think they're in business anymore. So this is the, the big message though, it's quality raw materials, I would say, because we're putting so much work into it that we want to start with, with the best that we can get. So these were some uh, chum salmon, which chum make excellent hot smoke products, I think, um, and especially the northern chums from um, Yukon or Kotzebue, really, really good fish to, to work with. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Special thanks to Chris Sanito, Alaska Sea Grant, and the University of Alaska Fairbanks for allowing us to record at the Smoked Seafood School. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quator Eben. This is the second episode of the fall 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you.